Hello, welcome to a midterm review for AP Human Geography. The review can be found on uh, our page, and if you can't find it, let me know. Uh, you might want to have it, you know, if, if you're a note taker, or like to take notes and things like that um, as we go through it. Um, so just a couple things. Uh, remember, for really any AP test that you take, um, you, you, you got to know the content, but more importantly, you also got to be able to apply the content. So, you know, some of the stuff that I'm going to go over is very broad. And on the test, you're going to have to be able to apply the fact that, hey, I know this. Now let me apply it to this question. So just keep that in mind um, as you prepare for the test. Um, knowing the content is half the battle. Being able to apply it to the questions, to the stimulus, and things like that is also super important as well. All right, so let's get rolling. Uh, hopefully you've had time to grab your review. Uh, the first thing there is fresh kills, and uh, this is pretty simple. Uh, it's just a, a old landfill that was up in New York City, uh, and it was just this huge thing, um, like size-wise, and also the Unfortunately, the environmental issues that, that came with uh, a landfill was kind of exacerbated by fresh kills. Uh, next up, reactions to natural hazards. So this was a tough one to write a review question for. Uh, it's just some of the responses that, that we are going to take as, as individuals, as uh, not necessarily me and you, but as a government, uh, communities that are going to take when things happen whether it be a hurricane or an earthquake or tornado, whatever the natural uh, disaster might be, we are going to do things, okay? We are going to react in certain ways. Um, you know, we are going to, uh, you know, obviously try and provide medical care, first aid, things like that, uh, bring in supplies, resources, just some of the reactions uh, that we as humans have for natural disasters, natural hazards, and things like that. Next up is Kentucky's Valley of the Drums. Uh, and this is another pretty simple one. Uh, it is just an, an area. It's up in Kentucky. Uh, and it is famous for all the old oil drums that were dumped there that contained industrial waste. Uh, now, this was back in the 60s and 70s, uh, but it is just this huge literally, like it says, a valley uh, with all these old oil drums. All right, the Center of American Cities, CBD labeled PVI, which indicates, and then there's a blank. So this was another tough one to write a question for. Uh, first off, what does PVI and CBD stand for? PVI is typically going to stand for primary value index, and then the CBD is going to be the central business districts. Okay. Um, and so uh, the CBD is typically the commercial and a lot of times kind of the center of the city. Um, it has high property values, buildings, uh, retail, office space, uh, things like that. And then the PVI reflects the highest level of land value uh, within that core area. All right. And it's typically going to be the most prestigious uh, and expensive commercial real estate uh, in the area. OK. Uh, high density urban cities. There's a whole bunch of them around the world. Uh, think of 
some of the, the places uh, you know, probably, that probably come to mind, but like Tokyo, Japan, Hong Kong, um, here in America, Los Angeles, uh, New York City, uh, places like that where there is just a lot of people uh, packed into these urban areas. The Homer Hoyt City Development Model. So this was something that was created back in the 30s, late 30s, early 40s by an economist, actually, Homer Hoyt. And uh, the model is looking to explain urban land use, basically, okay, uh, and how uh, the spatial organizations of cities uh, happen. And, and a lot of it, he's going to argue, is based on transportation corridors, uh, socioeconomic factors, okay? Uh, the model is going to kind of suggest that cities uh, develop from what we talked about just a minute ago, the CBD, the central the central business, the central business district. Sorry, I cannot spit that out there. Um, but so the cities develop from there, and then they go outward, and it follows the transportation routes. Because think back then in the 30s and 40s, you know the main thing was, hey, here's the business district, and they got to get their product out. So we need uh, transportation routes outside of these districts, and so the the roads the rivers, uh, the railways and things like that will be going out from the central business district because that's where everything happens and that's where stuff has to go out. Okay. So it kind of organizes the urban areas into these sectors uh, or uh, zones or whatever you want to call it that go out from the CBD uh, based on the transportation routes. All right. Features of Middle Ages or European colonial cities. This was another difficult one to write a uh, question or review uh, kind of thing for. Uh, and the, the big thing is, you know, they're going to have in common uh, these kind of narrow winding streets, uh, kind of a central marketplace, almost a precursor to our urban development where you have the central kind of center, center of the city. And a lot of times that is going to be based around kind of where all the economic activity happens. Uh, and then there's going to be, you know, going out from there. And then these places are also going to have like walls for protection uh, that you'd have to come in and out of to get to, to get to the city or out of the city uh, and things like that. Uh, planned parkland developments around European cities. So uh, this reflects uh, the approach to urban planning that looks to balance uh, the environmental, social, and recreational considerations uh, of a place. Okay. Uh, if you're in the Atlanta area, I don't know if you're familiar with all at all with the Beltway, uh, but it's trying to mix, you know, uh, some transportation, uh, greenery uh, with the, the city. Cities representative of national culture are called, uh, you know, it's our cultural capitals, cultural hubs. Uh, they are going to be the places where um, it kind of shows a cultural identity of a state, of a nation, uh, or whatever it might be. Uh, the area surrounding a city from which it obtains its food. So uh, once again, difficult to write a question about. Um, a lot of times that's going to be kind of the, the food shed area. Um, you know, it's going to be where the food supply comes from. Okay. Um, so uh, that concept where the urban areas get their their stuff, their food uh, from these places. Abraham Lovett, you've seen this question before. Uh, the Lovett family, they were responsible for kind of building those cookie cutter homes, uh, the, the suburban places of the, the 1950s. Uh, if you've seen any maybe uh, 
TV shows or pictures of the, the 50s and 60s, you had almost every house looked exactly the same. And the Levitts were responsible for, for building those. The Franks, the Burgundines, the Osseographs, and the Vandals, uh, they were the Germanic tribes that played a role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the subsequent period known as the Early Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Now, I think if I remember correctly on the test, there'll be a map and it shows some of the stuff that they did. The Industrial Revolution changed agriculture. So uh, it introduced all kinds of new machinery to the um, to agriculture, uh, things like the seed drill, uh, a mechanical reaper, um, other things, uh, and it sped up, it increased the productivity of agriculture by making these tasks much quicker versus being done by people, being done by animals, alrighty? Uh, and so uh, now more, no, more food is being created uh, and it allows bigger populations. You know, the, the whole thing allows a lot of the stuff that we see today with this, these urban centers uh, to happen uh, as people started to rapidly urbanize because, hey, let's go to where the jobs are. And there wasn't as many jobs needed on the farms as well. So it was this kind of perfect storm of, okay, people are wanting to leave the farms anyways. And now these machines are taking the place of people and the jobs. And so we got to go find somewhere else to work and people move to the city. So it's kind of like a little perfect storm there. Uh, cause of tsunamis, uh, a weird question to me, but like uh, volcanic eruptions, underwater earthquakes, uh, all those things are going to lead to uh, tsunamis. Predatory lending, uh, that is unethical lending practices that take advantage of vulnerable borrower, 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 people that borrow money. <laughs> uh, I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, and it's just, they, it can be all kinds of things. You know, if you have seen uh, maybe driving around <clears throat> a place that's like, uh, hey, you need cash, give us the title to your car. Well, the problem there is that once you do that, and then if you can't pay off the loan, they take your car. All right. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about there. So sometimes it looks really good. And if the deal looks too good, it's probably uh, it is probably too good to be true. So be careful with that if you're ever in that situation. Hopefully you never are. Gentrification. Uh, that is the process of revitalization and redevelopment in urban neighborhoods. Uh, and it's where uh, the neighborhood gets built up and then wealthier residents move in. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the people that used to live there can't afford it. Okay. Um, there's a show that was on Showtime. It's on Netflix now called um, Shameless. Um, it talks about it all the time because it's about Chicago, the, uh, the south side of Chicago, which typically is the lower socioeconomic side. Uh, and it has people moving in and building up the neighborhood. The Ring of Fire, uh, that is just the area in the Pacific Ocean with all the, the volcanic and seismic um, activity. Major factor in the size and function of most of our U.S. cities, uh, economics, transportation, market access, uh, all those things are going to play a role uh, in our U.S. cities' size. Uh, urban networks tied together in some meaningful way. All right, so they're typically going to be tied together through uh, economic uh, infrastructure connections, um, you know, the transportation networks, we have the interstates today, uh, people, not people, but like products going back and forth, railways, highways, airports, uh, things like that are all going to facilitate uh, the movement of people, goods and services between cities.
All right. Uh, Yurik, uh, just one of the early urban centers in human history. Uh, it dates back to around 4000 BCE. So, um, you know, long time ago. Uh, and it is just one of the first complex settlements uh, that we are going to uh, be able to, to have found and uh, kind of uh, explore. The concentric zone model of urban structure, uh, this is a framework that was developed in the 1920s to describe the spatial organization of cities, okay? Um, and so the innermost zone is, is going back to that CBD. So you really got to be able to understand that for this test, the central business district, and then the zones are going to kind of move out from there. And you've got uh, the different zones. You've got like the zone of transition um, that is going from the inner city uh, industrial fringe um, and moving outward. Then you've got the working class homes that pop up. Um, then you've got the zone of more uh, upper or middle upper class. Um, the commuter zone where people are going to move in, come, you have to go into the cities uh, from their homes in the suburbs uh, to work. Uh, nodal points, that is specific locations in a geographic network that serves as a significant hub or center of activity. Uh, they are characterized by connectivity and importance and moving people and goods and information and all that kind of stuff uh, around. Uh, 1850 world population data. So this is a question that's going to have a chart, a graph, something like that uh, on it. And you just got to be able to read it really um, and uh, pull the information from that. But just, you know, as a heads up, um, about 1 billion people in 1850 uh, worldwide. Obviously difficult to count uh, worldwide population. Um, let's see. Division of labor. Just the specialization of tasks and roles within a society or economy. So when we split up uh, our work and do things, um, you think about like your your classes. You have socialized teachers, you have math teachers, and things like that. So we divide up the work of teaching um, in high school. You know, I would hate to have to teach a math class. Columbian Exchange, I think y'all are pretty good with. But just as a reminder, that was the uh, trade network that developed once the New World was found. Uh, and so the Columbian Exchange was the exchange of plants and animals and diseases and ideas and all that kind of stuff between uh, Europe and the, the Americas. Modern agriculture in Europe is an extension of agriculture where um, <clears throat> the kind of the, the technological advancements uh, have happened and it's all those different ideas, the, the different things that happened during the Industrial Revolution, but like think of the enclosure movement where they start to, to fence in areas and things like that. Uh, the machines are happening, okay? Uh, but that is what we're getting at there. Green Revolution in India and other parts of Asia, that refers to the period of agricultural transformation uh, where they started to be, get higher yielding crops, okay? It's starting to move from subsistence farming, farming uh, and some of those things to more modern farming techniques, they're going to have more high yield crops um, and it is going to get rid of some of the food shortages and promote some of the rural development. Planned economies, uh, that's an economic system where key economic decisions uh, 
like what to produce, how to produce, for whom to produce. Those are the economic questions uh, where they are answered by a central planning authority or the government. Subsidence agriculture, I think y'all are pretty good with this. We've done it a couple times now. Uh, that is agriculture where farmers are going to grow or raise their, their livestock uh, to meet their needs. And really, that's it. They're not going to look to sell in the market. They're not going to look to do much other than just survive. Uh, agricultural land use according to Von Thunen. Uh, remember, this was a model that we talked about, uh, and that is the, the agricultural land use. Remember, it's going to be in the different rings, the different zones, uh, and it's based on transportation costs and things like that and trying to get stuff to the market uh, within a reasonable time before it rots. Uh, pastoral nomadism, uh, that is, you know, uh, the practice of moving livestock uh, in search of the best grazing land, in search of the water sources, uh, and it is going to occur in arid and semi-arid regions where the crop uh, cultivation is impractical. Capitalist industrial economic system versus capital commercial economy. Uh, in capitalist industrial economic system, uh, the focus is on industrial production, and manufacturing, whereas the capitalist commercial economy is focused on the commercial activities and trade. So um, basically getting the resources versus, you know, kind of trading the resources. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. Welcome back. So picking up on your review with China's economy today. That's where we left off. Um, so when this question was made, it's probably an older question at this point. Um, but anyways, um, so it's characterized by rapid economic growth, uh, industrialization, urbanization, and uh, really globalization. So China, you know, is always talked about as this huge market. Uh, and it is, okay, there are billions of people or not billions, but a billion people um, that are needing to buy stuff. Okay, so it is this huge market. Um, and it's why so many countries want to partner with China uh, all the time because they can get products from there. They can also sell products to that market. Okay. Uh, industrial activity, that just refers to the production of goods through manufacturing uh, processes. So think about you know, all the things that go into product pr producing, uh, getting the raw materials, getting them to market, processing those raw materials, uh, creating whatever the finished product is, all that stuff is involved in the industrial activity. Uh, two main principles in capitalist economies. Uh, first up is private ownership of property. You know, uh, we are going to own the factors of production. So land, labor, uh, all those things. Uh, private citizens uh, own those. All righty. Um, <clears throat> and then the next one is economic freedom. Uh, so we own the, the factors of production and then we have choice, all right? We have choice what we can do with them. You know, if you own some land, if you own property, uh, you can sit on it. You can also try and turn it into a business opportunity, all right? So you have those, those choices. Uh, crop complex, that refers to the combination of crops that are grown and cultivated in a particular region or agricultural system. Uh, and a lot of that stuff is going to be based on, you know, the climate, the geography, um, the demand for your product and things like that. Uh, private sector refers to the part of the economy that is owned and operated by private individuals uh, versus that that is ran by the government. 
The Von Dunen Rural Land Use Model applied to the United States. So if I remember correctly, there's going to be a map uh, that you're going to be taking a look at. Uh, just remember, you know, all the different zones um, that happen in the Von Thunen model. Uh, zone one is going to be the one that's closest to the major urban areas. Okay. Um, and then that's going to be where land values are highest, transportation costs are lowest because everything's pretty close by. Okay. Um, zone two in the U.S. will be characterized by forests, timber production, things like that. Uh, land values are down. Transportation costs, though, uh, are going to be a little bit higher because you're further away from the, the markets uh, in, in Zone 1. Uh, zone 3 will be devoted to the field crop cultivation and grain farming. All right. Uh, this zone is going to be where there are large uh, plots of land, land holding would be the way to say it, I guess. Uh, land values are going to be moderate here. Transportation costs will be up a little bit because once again, you got to get your stuff to the market. Zone four is going to be dedicated to livestock grazing, ranching, uh, extensive pasture land, things like that. Uh, think of the prairies, the grasslands that are suitable for uh, the, the large livestock, like large scale cattle operations, horses, things like that. Uh, and then Zone 5 is going to be uh, the wild, wildlife refugees, ref, not refugees, um, the wildlife uh, areas, uh, conservation areas, uh, things like that. GMP per capita. So GMP is going to be gross national product. It used to be a big deal in economics. Uh, it's not really used anymore too much uh, in economics anymore just because uh, we use GDP. GDP measures everything made uh, in a country versus GMP, which measures everything made by a citizen of that country. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's still a valuable tool, don't get me wrong, but it's just not one that gets used as often anymore. Um, but per capita, just, you know, let's put a, an area uh, and then let's figure out how much is made, how much is produced by that population uh, in that, that, that area, that state, that city, that country, whatever it might be. Uh, Large-scale economy refers to an economy that operates at a large level of production, consumption, uh, economic activity. Uh, it's usually going to have a large population, okay, uh, so think of America, uh, extensive geographic area, a uh, whole bunch of different industries, sectors, things like that. So, you know, uh, just all the different things that goes into an economy. Primary sector economic activity, uh, that's the extraction and production of raw materials and natural resources directly from the environment. So think of like mining, uh, oil drilling, uh, agriculture, forestry, things like that. Uh, to territory, to tertiary sector economic activity, sorry, uh, is the service sector. All right. Uh, and think about all the economic activities that go along with service. Um, when it comes to the production of goods, uh, it's going to include all kinds of things, you know, like any kind of service you can think of. Um, and I'm drawing a blank on any, any of the services. Uh, think of like uh, hotels, all right, motels, hotels, um, things like that, uh, the food industry. Uh, all those things are service industries. Sorry, I was drawing a blank. Uh, irrigation, all right, that's pretty simple. Uh, that is just artificially pulling water uh, to help with the watering of your crops, of your land, things like that. And we have come a long way in our irrigation system on the farms. 
Commercial agriculture, uh, this is growing crops, producing livestock, uh, primarily in order to sell in the market. You're not growing your crops just to, to survive. You're not having your, your livestock just to survive. You're going to take the stuff to market. Uh, capitalism, pretty easy. Uh, that's the economic system where uh, private citizens own everything just a few minutes ago. Um, and it is, you know, going to include things like free enterprise, uh, voluntary exchange. That's where, you know, I buy something you, that you're selling. Uh, as long as we both come out happy with the, the thing, that's voluntary exchange. No one's making us do anything. Uh, carrying capacity. That's the maximum population that an area, an environment can sustain uh, over a long time. So, you know, how many people can we fit into one area? You know, some of these big giant mega cities that we talked about earlier, those high density urban areas, you got to wonder at what point uh, is that carrying capacity going to be reached with so many people being jam packed into these small urban areas. And when I say small, it's just a, a lot of people living on a small amount of land. Economic geography, uh, so a subfield of geography that looks at the spatial distribution, organization, and dynamics of economic activities, resources, and systems at various scales. Um, and it's just, it's, I'm reading from my notes here, but it's basically just taking a look at how economics affects human societies um, and just, you know, our drive um, to, you know, survive. Um, and you know, obviously we've come a long way from what we were, where hunters, gatherers, subsistence farmers and things like that. And you could take a look at the geography and how it's affected the economies. You know, think about more recent history, uh, the American colonies. Uh, the Northeast is going to turn to industrialization much quicker than the South did. Uh, the North, the Northeast up there uh, in the colonies, they were kind of primed to, to, to be that uh, industrial center because they didn't have the growing seasons that the South did. And so the South, uh, you know, went agriculture because they had longer growing seasons. So we could trace ge economics and geography throughout our history. Uh, feudalism, uh, that was just the, the European system that lasted for a long time. Uh, and there was land ownership. You know, people were were obligated to the land, even though they didn't own it. They worked it, um, the serfs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I say that you probably haven't had world history yet. Uh, and so I'm probably if you have questions about feudalism, let me know and I'll go into more detail about it. But uh, just, you know, you had lords that owned the land. You had serfs that, that worked the land. And a lot of times they were kind of bound to the land. <clears throat> Hunting and gathering, primitive agriculture, and feudalism together. Uh, so we could just kind of trace the history, you know, and that's what I think this question is getting at, um, is the transition. And I just kind of mentioned this a minute ago, <clears throat> but going from the hunting and gathering that we we used to do, all righty, uh, to finally start to figure out, okay, hey, if I plant this crop, it's going to grow in a couple of weeks. I can harvest it. I can plant it again. It will grow next year as well. So I can have this, I don't want to say endless supply of fruits and vegetables, but I can continue to grow stuff here. So if I, I can stay here, I can then 
have my animals over there and I can harvest my animals year after year because they're going to give birth and blah, 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 on and on and on. Uh, and then that, how that translates into feudalism. Okay. Um, because all of a sudden we have people that are now owning the land and they are having their crops, they're having their, their cattle and all that kind of stuff on there. Uh, and so it's just this, this transition from the hunter, hunter and gather model to agriculture you know, substance farming to all of a sudden we have these big kind of land centers that are uh, going to have um, fields and livestock on them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, imperial economies, that is uh, economic systems that are kind of dominated by a political entity, uh, maybe an empire, maybe a monarchy, whatever it might be. All righty. Uh, United States in the congressional district. So this was a weird question to me. And just, I mean, we, we have the, the political geography that we got into back in unit two, um, back in semester one. Uh, but just know that the U.S. is broken down into congressional districts uh, based on population. Um, and that is the House of Representatives. You know, in Georgia, there's 14 districts. Uh, and the, the population kind of determines... Uh, how many districts you get. Georgia is kind of middle of the road population-wise. Uh, every state is guaranteed at least one. Uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T. Uh, I think there's some writing from him uh, on the test, and I, I think you may have seen this question before. Uh, but he is writing about how humans interact uh, and perceive basically their place in the geographic areas okay uh environmental determinism uh this is a theory that says that human behavior culture uh all that kind of stuff uh helps determine uh the environment okay so what does that mean it just basically means that our actions have consequences on the the land the climate uh and things like that uh you know people that are going to to be looking to change uh, climate policies today is going to use environmental determinism. Hey, the stuff that we're doing uh, is affecting the, the climate. Uh, measures the level of, of reproduction occurring in a population. Uh, that is going to be the, the birth rate, the crude birth rate. Okay. Uh, and you get that by the number of live births over the total population times a thousand. And that'll give you uh, the crude birth rate. Okay. So that's what we're looking for there. All right. Uh, so I don't think, yeah, uh, I don't remember you having to do the math on the test. I think you just got to remember that uh, that's what that is. All right. I'm going to take one last break and be right back. All right. Welcome back. So we're going to wrap this thing up. Uh, and I stopped where I stopped because you know, we're almost done with the multiple choice stuff and getting into the FRQs. So I want you to kind of be fresh there so you can take a break if you need to one as well. Um, all right. So first up, let's finish up the multiple choice stuff. So ethnocentrism and centrism, uh, that is just the evaluation of other cultures, practices, values, kind of compared to your own. And you typically are going to think that yours are the best. Uh, Brazil, Pakistan, and Nigeria, uh, looking at some population trends for those places. Um, and some of the population policies and, and whatnot. Um, so uh, I think, you know, if you can 
be able to compare uh, the population trends of those places. I think you should be in good, good shape. Uh, Kalingrad uh, is an exclave of Russia. Uh, an exclave, first off, is a portion of a country's territory that is geographically separated from the main part of the country by the territory of another state. Uh, and Kalingrad is located between Poland and Lithuania on the Baltic Sea. Uh, I think there's a map for that question. Uh, D.C., Ottawa, and Canberra, uh, those are all capital cities that serve as political and administrative centers, basically the capitals of them. And they were all created from some kind of compromise. So D.C. was uh, created by the Compromise of 1790, uh, whereas the states all gave some areas um, and it, the South wanted it to be closer to their kind of center, their heart, uh, and they gave in on some, some state debt stuff uh, in order to, to move it and have the, the state capital, well not, excuse me, the national capital, be in D.C. where it is. Um, so it was uh, some, some work there. Uh, Ottawa had some stuff back in the 1850s, uh, a compromise between English-speaking and French-speaking uh, individuals. Uh, Canberra, Australia, um, there was a rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne, the two largest cities. Uh, they couldn't choose who was going to be the capital, so the compromise was reached to, to make Canberra uh, the, the, the capital. So basically capitals, and then they were all going to be um, have some kind of compromise made to create them as the capital. Uh, and then the last part there, the map and chart questions, there's nothing to get into. Uh, some of the stuff that we talked about in the multiple choice does tie into some of the charts and graphs that you're going to see. So just be aware, uh, just like all the other tests you've taken for this class, there are going to be several map questions. There's going to be several chart questions where you have to kind of interpret uh, maybe a trade route or a travel route or something like that. Uh, you're going to look at some data and have to interpret it. Okay. All right. The FRQs. So you do have two FRQs. So just as a reminder, uh, I won't grade the FRQs until probably Saturday. So if you take this thing on Monday, the 26th, uh, I'm going to wait until everybody has had a chance to take it before I grade this. Things. Just, you know, just as a kind of a test security type thing. So just be aware that you know, your multiple choice grade might show up, but it won't be finalized until I have gone through and graded the, uh, the FRQ portion. All right. So the first thing, there's two of them once again. The first thing deals with primate city, uh, and that's a term used uh, to describe a city that is larger and more dominant than other cities in a country. Uh, and the primate city typically serves as the primary center of everything, economic, social, political, cultural, uh, whatever activity you can think of, the primate city is typically going to be the one that serves as kind of that beacon almost uh, to every, every, everywhere else in the region. Uh, they typically have populations that are huge uh, and much bigger than the next largest city uh, in a country. Okay, uh, some key characteristics of them: uh, the size. Once, once again, they're going to be large. Uh, population is going to be huge. Uh, they are going to be economically dominant, meaning they are kind of the hub of uh, economics, whether it be you know, the industries, whether it be shipping. Uh, financial institutions, all that kind of stuff is going to be happening in the primate city. Uh, political administrative functions, uh, they often serve as the capital uh, of the county, excuse me, of the country, uh, of the city. Uh, I'm, I'm mincing my words here. They are typically going to be like the capital, all right, 
and like for America, we're going to boil it down to the states. Okay, uh, you have the primate cities, um, and like Atlanta in Georgia is going to be that city because we are. I'm saying we because I think most of us live in the Atlanta area. We have all this stuff that we're talking about. We're huge geographically. We're huge population, economic dominance. We're going to serve as the, the state capital. Okay, uh, we are looked at for cultural social uh, hub, kind of the the leader uh, of that. We have all kinds of infrastructure. Think of all the railroads, the bridges, uh, all that kind of, really, we're just missing, um, you know, probably like canals and things like that um, for for us to be really be, you know, we don't need those to be a, a infrastructural leader, but just all that kind of stuff. Uh, some other examples around the world, Paris, France is one, uh, London, Mexico City, Buenos Aires, things like that. Okay. Um, and then we have the rank size rule. Uh, that's a principle in urban geography that describes the relationship between the sizes of cities in a country or region. Uh, and according to this, if cities are ranked in order of their population size from largest to smallest, the population of a city will be inversely proportional to its rank. Uh, what does that mean? Okay. Well, the, the population of the largest city in a county, region, country, uh, whatever it might be, uh, will be approximately twice as large as the population of the second largest city, three times as large as the population of the third largest city, and so on and so, so forth. So um, we can do some math. We're not. Math is dumb. Sorry if you're a math person. I can't stand it. Uh, but you could... You can probably math out some stuff if you're a math person. Uh, some characteristics, uh, decentralized distribution. So um, unlike the primate city where one city dominates, um, the rank size rule suggests a more decentralized distribution uh, population. Okay. Um, Scale-free distribution rank size rule implies that the relationship between city size and rank remains consistent regardless of the overall size of the urban system being analyzed. Um, it, uh, I think that's it for that one. Okay, so that's going to be the first FRQ. So basically, you're looking at, you know, the, uh, the primate city, the rank size rule, and writing about that, that stuff. The next one is the U.S. farming trends. And so we're looking here at some of the farming trends in the United States specifically. Um, and there are a couple things. First off, uh, this was on one of the, the, I think the last test, but you know, just remember that agriculture as a profession is kind of on the decline. You know, only two to five percent of the, the, the country is involved in agriculture as a job. Uh, other things, you know, you have mechanization, technological advances, making it, um, like, Think of the tractors, you know, going from what they used to have where they could just do a few jobs to now you have tractors that do almost everything uh, from cutting the fields to harvesting the fields to plowing the fields to doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, so just think about some of the advances that we have had uh, in that sector. OK, um, consolidation and industrialization. So basically what we're getting at here is that our agricultural practices have changed. We have gone from a lot of small farms growing and producing to now we have single big producers. So like the land uh, usage has, has, we have these huge farms now versus the, the small family farms that we used to have. 
Uh, specialization, crop diversity, you know, these farmlands are going to specialize in whatever it might be. Um, and then the final thing to talk about is food deserts. Uh, this is where citizens of a place, residents of a place, have limited access to affordable and nutritious food. Okay, so uh, think about, you know, maybe if you live in a city and you can't get fresh food, fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, and things like that, uh, you're going to struggle. Now, you know, for us, I don't think we really have this problem, but there are places out there where uh, we could consider it a a food desert because they don't have uh, those options. All right. Uh, it is once again, limited access to healthy food. Uh, you're isolated geographically. Uh, maybe you can't afford it. There's high poverty, high unemployment in these areas. Uh, the, the lack of healthy food uh, contributes to poor health, poor eating habits, uh, things like that. So um, it is a problem in some places. Once again, not one that we really have to face because uh, we have access to a lot of food, all right, and a lot of fresh food uh, if you go to the grocery store and things like that. But there are places that, that struggle. All right, uh, that is the review. Um, if you have questions, concerns, please reach out by email. I will be happy to try and answer anything, and I'll be on Sunday, uh, the 25th, to try and um, help as well. All right, guys, y'all take care. Have a great day. Best of luck on all your midterms, and I hope you have a great week seven and a great week eight. And if you're on break this week, I hope you're able to rest and relax a little bit. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.